Well, sometimes the general consensus on things is wrong. Sometimes we think because we've heard something over and over and over again that it must be true. But ironically, no surprise, it's not. So for example, Gabby, go ahead and put that first picture up there. What is that? Ooh, I heard the right answer from a couple people. Wow. You threw me for a loop on that one. Uh, most people see this and they would say it's a buffalo. As a matter of fact, we have a city named after these. We have a famous Westerner, Buffalo Bill, named after him. And if you've been in any history classes paying attention, you hear about the scourge of the settlers of the plains killing all the buffalo off. However, the only buffalo found in North America currently all reside in zoos because there have never been buffalo in North America, not a single one. Instead, we have these bison, which are mistakenly called by pop culture as buffaloes. Now, I'm not saying we change it to buff, you know, bison New York or bison Bill um, or the bison Bills who are playing football today. But we mistake it because everybody has said it. Here's another one. Now, I promise not to ruin this movie for anybody. Gabby, if you want to put that picture up there for me. I promise I will not ruin this movie. When a gladiator was in combat and he had defeated his foe and he had the sword out, he would look up to whatever official, in this, in this instance, it's Joaquin Phoenix playing Commodus, which just makes me want to go watch that movie. Um, and he looks up there, and the Caesar will say, thumbs down, kill him, thumbs up, let him live. Well, actually, that's not the way it was done. If the person was to live, the Caesar put his thumb into his hand. If the Caesar wanted him to die, he put the thumb up, as in stick the sword in him like this, right? So thumb up. Thumbs up and thumbs down had the opposite meaning until the 1940s when airplane pilots for World War II were taking off of aircraft carriers and they were trying to figure out a way to say we're ready to go and they adopted the thumbs up signal. Prior to that, thumbs up was a bad sign. So now you guys know. Still please enjoy that movie. The next one, and uh, I just got to tell you, Shark Week lies to us. I mean, it's, it's a full-on lie. You know, when we watch Shark Week, one of the things about sharks is that they're dangerous, right? Some of you go, oh, I know where you're going with this, Pastor John. And we think about sharks as this super dangerous thing that has more to do with the movie Jaws than reality. And you think, oh, I know what you're going to say, Pastor John, that actually it's more likely that you'll get struck by lightning than eaten by a shark. And you're right. But that's not the point. As a matter of fact, what is the most dangerous animal for humans? Is it sharks? Is it other humans? Nope. It's not spiders. Good guess, though. We should just get rid of them just to be sure, right? It's actually not bison. No, good guess. The number one thing that kills humans and has killed half of the humans that have ever died is mosquitoes. As a matter of fact, it's only one gender of mosquitoes. It's those female mosquitoes. No comment there about sucking blood. We're not going to do any of that. Please don't go there, guys. 
The male mosquitoes, they suck from plants. Female mosquitoes suck from living beings. Half of the people who've ever lived and have died have died from something that a mosquito transmitted to them. So we've got all sorts of ideas about things. We've got all sorts of ways we think things are. Um, in our culture, obviously, we look at that and we say, sinful, yeah, that's going to be wrong. But here in our church and in churches as a whole, we have some mis, uh, misdone, wrong thinking when it comes to certain things. Our church culture makes us go, oh, or maybe Christian culture as a whole makes us go, this is the way it's supposed to be. And so if you haven't already picked up on it, we here at New Life Gladstone don't really care what Christian culture says. We want to know what does God's word say. And so what is the lie that we're going to look at today? Well, actually, there's two. The first one is that you only matter. Well, actually, this will be the one we get second, but I'm going to talk about it first is that you only matter when you become an adult. That to be a child, you're a bother, or you're just kind of, you know, not even junior varsity, you're just kind of off to the side, and you don't really have a say yet. As a matter of fact, the Bible and Jesus himself is very strong in dealing with children and our misdealings with children. The second thing that we see, and we're going to spend our time on here at the beginning, is that once you've attained adulthood, you really don't matter. You can't really do ministry. You can't really be, you know, what you're supposed to be until you get married. As a matter of fact, that is a pressure that our culture, our church culture, has put on a lot of people. And Jesus strongly disagrees with this sentiment, as does the Apostle Paul. But don't take my word for it. Let's see what the Bible has to say. So today we're going to talk about singles first. We're going to spend most of our time there because there's a lot to dig into. And then the last little bit, last third of the sermon will be on children. So that's kind of where we're going. Children and singles are vital to the health of the church. Now when I say church, I don't mean new life church, even though that is a church. What I mean is the body of Christ, which is what the church represents. In both of these groups, singles and children, it's easy to feel excluded. It's easy to feel lonely. It's easy to feel as if you're lacking something. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. And it really doesn't matter what all of us think. We need to get to what Jesus thinks. So let's do a little experiment. I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 7. And I want you to listen carefully as we read this, this is another passage about divorce, and if you have any questions about what this meant, go back and listen to last week's sermon because I did address it there. But listen to this. Paul writes, now as a concession, not a command, I say, I wish that all of you were like myself. Each of you has his own gift from God, one for one and one for another. Now to all the unmarried and the widows in the room, I say it's good that you remain single as I am. If you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to all the married in the room, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now to all the rest of you, I write, that if my, any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
Now, again, I say, if you have any questions about the divorce and what that was, how that ties into last week, please listen to last week's sermon or come see me afterwards. But I want to focus on the twos in here. So many times when we read the Bible, if you remember, verse 8 says, to the unmarried and the widows. It's really easy for us when we come across something like that to go, that's not me. It's not me. This doesn't really apply, so you kind of tune out. Or maybe you're reading it in your quiet time, and you kind of just skim it, you know, check, I did my Bible reading, but it really, it's not for me. Or maybe you get to verse 10, and it says, to the married, and you're like, that's not me. Why, does, why do I care? And then to the rest, clearly talking to married people as well, you just kind of tune it out, just kind of doesn't apply to me. We all do this. It's very typical, especially when we're reading the Bible. We want, what is this for me, but how does this work? So let me explain something to you. Corinthians was written to the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth. That's who Paul addressed this to. So when it arrived there, here's the people he's talking to. How it arrives to us is not like that. It's not Paul writing to New Life Gladstone. There's not a New Life Gladstonian book in the Bible. Instead, the whole thing is for us. See, God in his wisdom, what he did was he saved all of these letters. He protected them. And so we have them now. And so when we read 1 Corinthians, everything in there is for us as a church. It's for all of us, every single part of it. This is why I love that we preach straight through the Bible, because God in his infinite wisdom planned that you would be here today to hear this sermon on this passage. And so everything that we talk about today is not for somebody else, it's for you. And we need to get that in our minds when it comes to reading God's word. This isn't, I'm not reading the Bible so I can tell you all what to do. I'm reading the Bible to have God show me what I need to do. And sometimes he's going to show you what you need to do in passages that you would look at and say, oh, I'm not married, that doesn't apply to me. So let's broaden how we look at God's word. So first we're going to look at, we're going to look at singles. Now many of you in, the, in your life, you are not single. Your stage of life is you're not currently single. But there are two reasons why you need to pay attention. One, and this is not a happy thing to think about, but we're all going to be single again. Some of you have already experienced that. A loved one has gone home to be with the Lord before you. Most married couples do not die at the same time. And so, I know this is not very cheery, sorry, but it's the truth is that you're gonna be single again at some point in the future. The second reason we need to look at this is that singleness directly affects us. The Bible says the local church is a body. It's not a body when you get married and you get brought into the varsity because you're married. That's not the way the Bible says it. The Bible says all of us, widows, widowers, single, children, married, divorced, we're all a part of the same family. We're all a part of the same body. So what that means is we all have a stake in each other's lives, married and single. I have a stake in all the healthy marriages in the church, as do you. I have a stake in all of the singles in this church, as do you. In a world where like hangs out with like and friends that have the same interests hang out with each other, the church is a picture of something totally different. The church is a picture of people who come together solely because of Christ and then care for each other. 
So we need to lift our eyes up. We do a good job of this. We do a good job of caring for our singles, but we could always do better. We do a good job of caring for our children, but we could always do better. So let's get into the passage. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So where are we coming out of? Last week we talked about the Pharisees asking these trick trap questions for Jesus, trying to, tr- trying to make him stumble, make people not like him. The disciples, though, recognize that he's making it much harder. They shouldn't be surprised, though, right? We've seen this before. Jesus says, you know, the Bible says don't murder. And they're like, yep, haven't killed anybody. And he goes, yeah, but if in your head you're doing it, it's not okay. Like, oh, man. Okay, don't commit adultery. Yeah, don't commit adultery. He goes, yeah, but if you've lusted, you've done it. And so they shouldn't be surprised that Jesus has made it more difficult. The disciples are dismayed, though. Some people think that this is the disciples kind of making light of it. I don't see that. Instead, I think they're dismayed. I think they're thinking, hold on a second, like, I didn't think we were getting into this kind of following of Jesus. See, there are other groups, like the Essenines, who got rid of marriage and became celibate for the Lord. And so maybe they're thinking, what does this mean going forward? You know, because many of these men would have been married. We know for sure Peter was married. Are they saying, we need to go get divorced? Are we saying we're no longer getting to see our wives? Are we saying that these guys that haven't gotten married aren't going to be allowed to? So they have questions. Are they able to receive? The word receive here means to accept. Are they able to accept it? So let's talk about this eunuchs thing. So before we get into specifically what the eunuchs represent, there's three groups here of people that are dealt with. And and it really kind of tells us why some people remain single. Verse 10 tells us that there are some that are fearful. They're going to remain single because they're like, oh, marriage is, they're not always ending happily, and it seems like more stress, so I'm scared I'm not going to enter it. Verse 12 tells us there are those who are from birth and those who have been made a certain certain way. These are those who cannot marry for whatever reason. And at the end of verse 12, it says there are some that choose not to marry. So how does this all relate? Well, the fear of marriage, that one we kind of see in verse 10, we get that. But this whole eunuchs thing in verse 12, what does this mean? Well, first off, a eunuch is somebody, is a a male who has been castrated, meaning he is unable to reproduce. The very beginning, it says eunuchs that were eunuchs from birth. Now here, Jesus is saying there are some people that are born unable because of a physical deformity to be able to consummate a marriage. There are others who lack the desire to do that, sexual desire, ability to have sex, of something like that. So the first group is those who by no choice of their own have, have a certain thing with them that makes it so they cannot consummate the marriage. The second thing we see is that eunuchs who were made that way by others. Now this was really very common in Jesus' time. And how this would work was the king who has his wife and his harem of women or his multiple wives would want guards. And contrary to modern America myths, they didn't hire just female guards. They they wanted male guards. 
Well, that led to a problem. If the male guards impregnated any of the harem, he would now, they would be in line for the king's crown. And the king wanted it only to go to his kids, his progeny. So that's kind of where this is at. So what the king said was, you want to guard my people, you want to be important in my court, we're going to have to make sure you cannot pass on your genes to anybody else. And you go, why would anybody do that? Well, they do that because it gives them a high place of power. And it's not uncommon for people today to give up on family, to give up on marriages, to gain power. There was no difference back then. So these kings would give their second-in-commands. They would castrate them to keep them in check. The third group we see in verse 12 is those who choose to be like eunuchs. This is not they chose to castrate themselves for the kingdom, even though some people have misinterpreted it that way in church history. Rather, he's saying this is a figurative, giving, putting aside the desire for sexual relationship, desire for marriage, because those two are go, always go together. He says, this group has said, I'm going to devote myself to God, and I'm not going to pursue marriage. And so he likens them to eunuchs. We would say something along the lines of single. So if we were to go back and read verse 12, for there are singles who have been so from birth. There are singles who've been made single by men. And there are singles who have made themselves singles for the sake of the kingdom. This is really what Jesus is getting at here. So we can look at it a whole different ways, but what is the purpose, what is the reason behind the singleness? Because ultimately what Jesus is going to say here is singleness is actually a gift. Now I know some of you are single against your will. You would like to be married, but you aren't. Some of you are single against your will because of death or divorce. Some of you are single by choice. Maybe you've weighed the factors and you said, my career won't let me be married. And some of you are single for the sake of the kingdom. And I think Jesus' ideas here that he's talking about, about the value of this, is, is not just, hey, single is single for goodness sake. Single is an opportunity to serve the Lord in a way that married people can't. So when he says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He's talking about marriage. He's saying only some can, can deal with marriage the way it's supposed to be. And then at the end, he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And he's talking about those who can receive the singleness, the being able to be single. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's pledging the Father's care and provision for those who are single. God is for you. And if you accept his calling as a gift, your life lines up with what Jesus is talking about here. Single people are not out of place. They're not failing to live up to their potential. They're not incapable of embodying God's design. No, instead, they have everything they need. Because if you have Christ, you have everything you need. So the options are you can fight it or you can receive it. So what are the needs of the singles in our church? Well, first of all, just like we saw last week, marriage is hard, singleness is hard. One of the things that, and I kind of touched on this a little bit last week, is that Jesus kind of flips things on its head. What we do is we go, man, being celibate is so hard in our culture and, and, and in, our, in our world, we should get married, right? Like it's too hard to not, you know, because of our culture's insanity about sex, it's too hard, better not to burn in passion, get married. That's, that's very common logic. 
Jesus' logic is the exact opposite. You think marriage is hard? Then don't get married. Celibacy is easier, right? That's his thing, and that's so foreign to how we look at the world. It's backwards. Our world makes celibacy sound so hard, so go out and have sex and maybe even get married. But here, we see that Jesus redefines it again. Our world's view is that if you don't have romantic love or sexual fulfillment, you are not a person. I mean, that's, that's everywhere. Two of the most important people in the Bible actually never had romantic or sexual fulfillment. Now, we don't know for sure about Paul. We assume that he probably was married at one point. But by the time he's writing most of the New Testament, he is single. So that means no romance. That means no sex. And honestly, there's no one save for Jesus who knew God better. Not to mention the fact Jesus was never romantically involved. Jesus never had sex, even though Hollywood keeps trying to tell us that's impossible, so the Bible must be a lie. Yet he is our model. He's the one we're to be like. See, what ends up happening a lot of times is married and single people, we like to compare the other, right? So if things are going bad in your marriage, you compare the lows of marriage with the highs of singles, And you go, oh, man, if I just didn't have all these requirements, it would be great, like those single people. And singles do the same thing. Something's bothering them. They're low. They're they're feeling depressed and lonely. They go, oh, singleness sucks. Look at the marriage. They have everything they need. It's perfect. And we do that. We go back and forth. But God's counsel is, is that if you're married, it's a gift from God. If you're single, it's a gift from God. And we must see this, and we must help each other see this to be a united body together. So what are some of the benefits of being single? Being single is a you get to be pulled in fewer directions. You don't have to organize a small army to get out of the house. You can do things that other people cannot do. Singleness is not for us, but ultimately our singleness is for the Lord. Remember a few weeks ago when we were in Colossians and talking about how everything we do is for the Lord, if we could get that as followers of Jesus, that everything we do, every conversation in my marriage is for the Lord. Every time I interact with my children is for the Lord. If I am single, every interaction with a friend is for the Lord. If we could get that, it would really help us to understand this better. Jesus does not say being celibate is making you holier. It's also not a condition for ministry, even though the Catholic Church would say so. But it is a special calling granted to some. Singleness in marriage must be held in a high regard. There are countless singles who have done amazing things for the Lord. Some of the big name ones, John Stott, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, all unmarried. And so it's good for us to realize that the Lord uses everybody. The Lord uses all of us wherever we are at. So married couples, listen to your single friends. Befriend single friends. Learn how to love them and care for them. Because ultimately, when Christ returns and the marriage supper of the Lamb happens, we're all single and we're all going to be married to Christ. So this singleness is not a hamper. It's not something to get in the way. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in the passage I just read to you 
1 Corinthians 7, 7, he says, I wish you were all like myself. He's speaking about singleness. But each has his own gift from who? God. One of one kind and one of another. Where you are at right now, even if you are longing for something else, where you are at right now is a gift from God on purpose. It's not a plan B. It's not, oh, you missed your chance. No, this is exactly where he wants you. He's the one who orders all things. It's one thing to roll your eyes at a well-meaning family member who's like, no, why aren't you married, right? It's one thing to roll your eyes at that individual. I'm not giving you permission, but I might have done the same. But it's a totally different thing to roll our eyes at the omniscient God of the universe who is saying, I have you here on purpose. You are not a mistake. Yesterday we did the the disability training, um, getting our ministry started with that. And one of the things that my friend Severin kept saying over and over again is he says, disabled children and adults, they didn't, God did not miss a stitch. He didn't mess it up and go, oh, I messed up. He said, no, I've, I've knit you together in your mother's womb, and you're here on purpose. Same thing goes for each of us. If we balk at the idea of singleness being a gift, it's not because God has not understood us, but it's because we have not understood him. And, and again, we're not helped by our world. Our world's view of intimacy is wrong. It's false. In our world, intimacy is synonymous with sex. But in fact, intimacy can be expressed sexually, but it's not always the case. One can have sex and not be intimate. One can be intimate and not have sex. Sexual union is designed to express and deepen intimacy within a marriage. So we see this idea that there needs to be intimacy, and our world says the only way you can really be close to someone is if you are sexual with them. Oh, yeah, okay, I guess marriage. But that's not the way God set it up. C.S. Lewis comments on this in his book, The Four Loves. Those who cannot conceive of friendship as substantive love, but only as a disguise or an elaboration of sexual love, betray the fact that they've never had a good friend. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan, both heterosexual men, even though that's a term the Bible didn't even, that's not a term that was around then. They were men who were married, had children with their wives, but yet they were such close friends that it makes us in our 21st century culture go a little, oh, that's a little too close. Why? Not because guys can't be great friends with guys, but because our culture has so permeated everything and made it all about sex. Our culture has flattened friendships. And it's targeted men really extremely on this. Men need good men friends that we can hug, that we can embrace, that we can say, I will die for you. I love you like a brother. I love you more than I love anyone. And that's what David and Jonathan said. And so our culture grabs onto that and goes, well, they must be gay. I even saw a billboard for that one time. Homosexuality is not a sin. Jonathan and David were gay. So far from the truth. And Proverbs says this, Proverbs talks about this, true friendship is better than family. Look at Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And you're going, wait a second, I thought the Bible held families up. Yes, families are very important, but we all know that families get in beefs with families, right? We get that. 
You know, we, we've seen that. Ironically, the Hatfields and McCoys were actually relatives. Did you know that? No surprise that they were able to fight, but it's pretty amazing that they didn't know that. But a friend sticks. Family can be fickle, family can have baggage, but a friend stays. Even more so than a biological brother. And this is the love that Jonathan and David had. And this is the love that we all need. We need intimacy with each other. Singleness allows for depth of friendship and care better than anything married people can do. Think about the friend who drops everything to go stay with a woman who just had a fall and whose husband is not at home anymore. The woman who goes and is able to cook and clean for that lady. If she was married, that would be a really difficult thing to do. Having to leave the, the husband to fend for himself, you, never, you know that's never a good idea. And if there's kids, that's even a worse idea, right? But instead of neglecting her family, she can go, I'm single, I can come help. And many of you do this. It's like the man who goes, my friend is thinking of suicide, and so I'm going to jump in the car and call in sick to work, and instead of neglecting a family which I don't have, I can now spend days with that person praying and being there and just being present. It's very impossible for us married people to do that. Now, that doesn't mean we're off the hook. I'm married. I don't have to help you. I mean, if you can swing it, do it. But man, single people, whether you're newly single whether it was a single of your choice or if it's a lifelong single, you have opportunities to serve in ways the rest of us can't. But it gets better. Mark chapter 10. Peter is talking to Jesus, and I think Peter's trying to puff himself up. But Jesus gives him an answer that I think is going to help us here. Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we've all left everything and followed you. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. See, what we expect from Jesus there is when Peter goes, we left everything, Jesus is going to go, oh, you're going to get so much more in heaven, don't worry. But that's not what he says, does he? Instead, he goes, you're going to receive when? In this time, a hundredfold. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. Now, before you all start going, is that Benny Hinn up there on the stage? This is not a prosperity gospel message. What this is saying is this is saying there is some sort of blessing that people that do not have family give up on family and pursue Christ. There is some sort of blessing right here and right now that is greater a hundredfold than having all that stuff. So what is that? For the singles in the room, what is that? And it's this. Nature only gives us one dad and one mom. No matter how much our world tries to come up with all sorts of other permutations, it's always a guy and a gal, their parts getting together to make a baby. But the gospel gives us more than one dad and one mom. Some of you are only children. Some of you have had huge families. The gospel gives us even more. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy says, Timothy, my son in faith. And that's a term of endearment. It's not just, hey, bro, you know, not like that. This is a, you are my son. So some of us who've been made single by divorce, death, or your life situation, or you are choosing to be single to stop and serve the Lord, need to realize that there is a family that is huge. See, us us people who have kids, we are leaving a lifelong legacy, but we know that that's very short because if we measure eternity, it's like, or if we measure our time, it's like this. Eternity goes on forever. And so as singles, you have the opportunity to leave an eternal legacy through the relationships that you point to the Lord. Let me give you an example of this. C.S. Lewis wrote the book, Great Divorce. It's an allegory where he's trying to answer the question, why would anybody choose to go to hell? Um, And so the narrator comes in and he talks about it. And so he goes on this trip to an imaginary heaven, which C.S. Lewis says, heaven's not like that, but he wants you to think about what heaven would be like. So this is what the narrator says. There was a line of boys and girls, musicians, dancing, celebration, and even a few giant angels. At the center of this procession, and in whose honor it was taking place, was a beautiful lady. She is, my guide explained, someone of significant greatness. On earth, she was unheard of, a woman by the name of Sarah Smith, who never had a single biological child, nor was she married. But in heaven, she is one of the greatest ones. And a large number of young men and women were flanking her are, in fact, her sons and daughters. The guide explains, every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if he was delivering milk to the back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving their natural parents more. Sarah Smith didn't have a single biological child on earth, but her spiritual children were innumerable. See, here's the thing. Our world, again, gets this wrong. You only matter when you have your kids and you have them for this amount of time. And any parent who's had kids knows that time just goes super fast. But the Bible's picture is that there are all sorts of children around you right now that need you. And not just the ones that are having fun in children's church right now. There are those around you who need each other. Every single one of us needs spiritual fathers and mothers to help point us to the Lord. This is what makes a church a family. We need all of you. We need singles. We need married. We need old. We need young. Single people need to have friends who are married. Married people need to have friends who are single. Young people need to learn from the old, and the old need to learn from the young. We need each other. And we see this. Jesus, this, these stories are in the, in the Bible on purpose. And so these eunuchs who are, are, are not able to have children, immediately after he makes this, this discussion, what happens? The children show up. See, Jesus, the gospel brings death into life, turns it into life. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? Where barren mothers can't have kids and then they are able to have kids. Well, a eunuch is the male version of that. He's not able to father children. But here, Jesus is saying, look at all the children that come. In Isaiah 54, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 56, it says the eunuchs will be fruitful in the kingdom. 
This doesn't mean they grow parts of their body back. Instead, what it means is that they're going to be able to have a spiritual family that is beyond number. So marriage and singleness, both good gifts from God, ways in which we experience his goodness. Neither is easy because of the fallen world we live in. Both are painful. Both have ups and downs. But they're both essential for this church to live. Because ultimately, love is the bedrock. We join each other in our, our houses, we get together, we interact, we serve, we learn, we worship together. All of this comes together to point to the greatness of the Lord, and we need each other. Now, singles, that's the first bit. Now for our last little bit here, I want to talk about children. So God's word about and to children is pretty clear. No matter whether you have kids or not, The first reason is that raising kids is not an individual project. It's a community project. We need all of you together to help raise the kids in this church. And secondly, these kids won't be kids for very long. I mean, I was like patting Kyle's butt and like burping him just like yesterday. Not really, okay, but in my mind it feels like it was just, I couldn't do that to him now. Look at the size of him, right? But for us parents, our kids were like babies just yesterday, right? They're going to be grown up before you know it. And the legacy of this church is what do our kids do when they go on their own? And we cannot do this by ourselves. So let's look at this passage. The historical context, again, is we've talked about marriage, we've talked about singles, but the Bible is clear, children matter. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Despite what the Bible taught about this, children were maligned in Christ's time. Now, part of this is that they were viewed as a commodity. They were viewed as something that you could use to make money, to keep the family alive. Part of it also, the reason why they were kind of not looked highly on was because children died very regularly. And so I think there was a defense mechanism there to keep it from being that you were too attached to a child that many times would die. But in spite of this, children would grow up and they were were something that was valued, sort of. In the Greco-Roman world, the law said, you don't want your kid, you could leave them outside to die. Pretty common thing to do. And throughout history, all the pagan cultures... And all the non-Christian cultures throughout the ages did the same thing. You don't like your child, child's colicky, just put it outside, let it die. Christians would come along and adopt those children. Christians were always the ones that went in to help those who couldn't help themselves. Now today is no different, is it? We like to think because we've all got cell phones and we've got electric cars and we've got airplanes and computers that we are so advanced. But in fact, children are still commodities. Many times they must be dealt with. Abortion is a huge money-making enterprise, even with Roe versus Wade being overturned. And as a matter of fact, for some people in our culture, this is a sacred thing. It is as holy as anything we hold here not because it is holy, but because they think it's that important. In fact, one of our political parties has added the right to abortion to their party platform, saying that this is what they're going to fight for. 
But Christians are not left with nothing to do because here is the thing. Our hope is not in political parties. How politicians work is they go, which way is the wind going? Oh, it's going that way? So even if we have one party that's doing it right now, doesn't mean the other party's doing it right as, as well. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything. Politicians change their minds all the time. As a matter of fact, a big-name politician changed his a few weeks ago, saying that he will allow abortions if he is put in charge. Why? Because half of America thinks it's a good idea. We cannot put our hope in politicians. But, hear me on this, we must value the lives of children. That must be a priority. You know, one of the things that's a common canard of the pro-choice movement is that Christians just want mothers to be unhappy and miserable and poor. If they really believed in this, they would be adopting these children. And I can proudly say that actually Christians are doing that. One of my friends who lives in Portland adopted a child from one of my past students when she walked away from the Lord and got pregnant with a random one-night stand. He adopted that child and has raised it as his own. Now, it wasn't easy. It was not something fun, but it happens. I've seen Christians standing outside abortion clinics with signs, we'll adopt your child, we'll pay for all of your medical expenses. This is the stand we're supposed to have for children. We're supposed to care for them. This is not a political issue. This is a life issue. So, hear me on this. We're not to break God's commands to stop the killing of babies. That's not what we're going to do. But instead, we're going to do everything we can, even being in uncomfortable positions, to honor and care for the children among us. See, it's really easy to take verses 13, 14, and 15 and kind of, you know, like allegorize them a little bit or, or maybe make them a metaphor for humility. The problem with that is, is that Jesus has already taught that. And, and yeah, Jesus likes to repeat himself because that's what good teachers do. But here, this has nothing to do with the childlike attitude. It just has to do with the value of children. Verse 13, then the children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them. And pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. So the disciples are rebuking the parents. The word children here is the word paideia, which means a child, but not an infant. So these are, you know, toddler to junior high, high school age. And they were second class citizens, and they wouldn't have been around the rabbi, but Jesus was different. So the parents brought them to him. The disciples scold them. They had forgotten how Jesus had scolded them earlier. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus scolds the disciples. They had forgotten what he had said earlier in chapter 18 when he said at the time the disciples saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me, to sin, it would be better that a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So chapter 18 is saying, be like the children. Chapter 19 here is saying, don't hinder them. Don't get in the way of them knowing Jesus. So let's bridge this to our day. What must we do as a church to help children be able to connect with Jesus. We cannot hinder them. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about the three ways that we currently do this, and many of you are involved in this already. 
I think we've got about 50 people who work in the children's ministry, and that's a huge blessing. But it's not just babysitting. There's actually a reason behind it. So the first thing we do, first thing we must do is we must help children hear about Jesus. And that's a, again, that's a community project. It's not just we farm it out to children's workers. They're awesome at it, true. But we all need to be a part of that. What that means is when we're in our life groups, when we're in our Bible studies, when we're, we're just working in the nursery, we're teaching our children about Jesus, not be like this person or be like that person or do good and get good stuff or do bad and get bad stuff, but teach them the good news that Jesus died for them. We also need to be clear in how we teach our children, which means, sorry, we don't get those $5 theological words out there. Saying to a child something like this, our super lapsarian view of the penal substitutionary atonement of the Messiah for the propitiation as a substitution of our exaltation at the consummation of the eschaton is of paramount, paramount momentous gravity. Got it, kids? Got it, adults? We must teach the children. Children learn by doing and children learn by watching. And they're watching all of you. So we need to teach them the gospel through how we interact with them. And that goes right into the second one. We must help our children see that they're a part of this church. We don't call it children's church. I know I, miss, I said that by accident a second ago. There's not a children's church and an adult church. There's a church. We just have the children having very pointed teaching for their learning ability at, for a very short time. But they're a part of this church. Jesus died for them. And honestly, many times, he gives them clearer thinking than we have. And we need that. So they join us in worship. And I would love to have them join us more. And we may do that here in the future. We need their singing. We need their energy. We need their squirreliness. We need their distraction because it reminds us of we are to have a childlike faith. We need their energy, right? We need their enthusiasm. We need their joy. They are a part of us, and we are a part of them. Third, we must help them transition from being a child to being a youth to being an adult. The stages are important, and they do not grow in worth as they grow older. Oh, you're more mature. You're more valuable. No, they're priceless from the moment of conception. Now, we, we look at this, and sometimes because our world idolizes the, the, the kids in our culture, they've got to have everything. They've got to have this. They've got to go to every single thing, and they are idolized and put up there. And the, the parents' worth is how, what their kids are doing. Well, my kid has three special coaches, and yours only has one, right? That kind of thing. The world does that. They got the right idea that children are very important. They got the execution of it wrong. So we must be willing to have children in our midst. And some parents are going to decide to do that earlier than others. They're not going to go and be in the children's classes. And so we as a group, we welcome the distraction. We welcome the noise. Yes, it may mean that you may need to see me after the service and go, you know what, I didn't hear half of what you said. I was distracted. That's fine. I'll get you the notes. I'll get you the video. But these children are growing into adults. They are our legacy. So we need to be fine with our children squirming and crying and being energetic. And parents, you need to not feel shame about that if your child is doing that. It's all a part of the growing process. Because the kingdom is all of us together. 
Our children are going to join us here in a minute and sing with us. And I am so excited that their voices are added to it because that's our whole church. Look at what Jesus does in verse 15. He laid his hands on them and went away. It doesn't say who the them is. Is it the parents and the kids? Well, we know it's the kids for sure. But Jesus gives them a blessing. See, Jesus can touch and minister to everyone. Doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter their ethnicity, doesn't matter their marital status. His blessings are for all. And this is good news. You don't have to be good and clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't have to wait until you're married. You don't have to wait until you're old. You don't have to do any of that. You can come to Jesus, and if you go to him and ask him, he will bless you. So I'm going to have the worship team come up as we wrap up here. So we've looked at various stages and situations in life. People are either married or single. They're either adult or a child. Every situation has challenges. It has blessings. But here's the thing. Challenges are more challenging when you go through them by yourself. So don't do that. If life is challenging you, you're a single or you're in a, a married or you're a child or you're an adult and life is challenging, this is the place where we help each other with the challenges. Your connection cards are a great place to get in touch with the elders and me. But guess what? Most of you hang around here after the service. Find somebody and talk. Blessings are also more of a blessing when they're with a group, when you share them with others. You never know sometimes when you are being blessed by something and you're allowing it to spill over to somebody else in this room is exactly what they needed that day. The Lord is good like that. So marriage, singleness, adult, child, all of us are called by God in those situations. So the two resources the Lord gives us, the first one is his love through Christ, and the second one is his love through us loving each other. Let's be a church that loves everyone and does it well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we sing to you and we worship you through song, Lord, help us to have this, this passage work down deep into us. Where is it that we are neglecting those of your body? Help us to see those places. And Lord, help us to repent and go, go to work taking care of those in our body. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and be pleased by our time of worship. In your name, amen.